The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com events where you can get your tickets. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's Wednesday, November the 2nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Last Friday, Minister for Justice Helen McEntee published the Incitement to Violence or Hatred and Hate Offences Bill. The bill, which if passed will replace the 1989 Incitement to Hatred Act, is intended to give added protection to members of specific groups who are particularly affected by crimes motivated by antagonism towards or indeed hatred of those particular groups. It also extends these protections to some additional categories of people. The new bill has been welcomed in some quarters and it's been greeted with concern in others, particularly when it comes to its proposals on hate speech. Some organisations believe its exemptions for political speech are too broad and will render the legislation ineffective, while others argue that the legislation represents an unacceptable infringement on speech rights and that it will have a chilling effect on legitimate debate on subjects of public interest. I'm joined today by Professor Owen O'Dell. Owen is Associate Professor of Law at Trinity College Dublin, and he's written extensively on issues of freedom of expression. Hi, Owen. Hi, good morning. I suppose maybe just to set the ground, first of all, what is this legislation, Owen? Why has it come about and why now? Uh, well, why now? It's a government commitment, so um, they're, they're meeting their commitments. Uh, the legislation does two things. It um, uh, creates uh, an alternative framework to replace the prohibition of incitement to hatred act, as you said. And the second part of it uh, creates uh, enhanced sentencing for hate inspired crimes. And uh, the two of these things put together are to meet a, uh, a government commitment to the program for government. And the first half, the replacement of the prohibition of incitement to hatred legislation reflects um, a, a European directive that we have for a long time not really given great effect to. And what is that directive and why is the, the previous legislation not, not met? Well, the, it's it's a framework directive, um, which is, and the, the word framework means that you get a choice as to whether you implement it or not. Um, and the sorts of reasons why um, uh, the uh, bill is being both uh, welcomed and uh, 
argued against are the sorts of reasons why the framework directive wasn't implemented. Um, the previous prohibition of incitement to hatred act um, prohibited incitement, which is to say uh, statements that had the effect of inciting hatred against somebody. Um, and there had been several instances of prosecutions that had failed uh, where the uh, the hate speech had not in fact incited hatred against uh, against the group. So, for example, somebody goes on a bus, starts ranting against an African woman who is sitting at the front of the bus, and the people in the bus basically bundle him off. He is uh, charged with uh, incitement to hatred. Uh, but because people bum bundled him off rather than agreed with him, he hadn't actually incited any hatred, and therefore uh, the, uh, the prosecution failed. So that is, if you like, the core case uh, into which the a directive and now the new bill expand our prohibition of incitement uh, and uh, hate speech laws. And is there a further element to that as well in that, am I right in saying that the previous legislation required proof of of intent, of deliberate intent, motivation on the part of the um, of the person who was accused, and and that this broadens the um, that capacity that if people behave in a certain way, it can be deemed to be reckless, and therefore they can be they can be convicted. Yeah, um, there are two elements to the uh, incitement offence um, in the new bill, which is to say, uh, the the first one is that there is um, uh, an incitement to hatred, um, and then the second one is that it. Um, that, that you were either intending to stoke it up or reckless as to whether you're going to stoke it up or not. Um, but uh, you have to have some element of intention or recklessness. There has to be some mental element to the crime. Uh, it's not enough that you say something. You must know or be reckless that uh, what you are saying has uh, the effect of stoking up hatred against somebody with one of the protected characteristics under the bill. Is it fair to say that the parts of this legislation which relate to uh, what people often understand as hate crimes, you know, violent assaults, uh, arson attempts, all kinds of terrible stuff, um, that, that that's in a way the more straightforward part of the legislation, that it now attaches greater penalties to those actions if they can be, they can be proved to have been motivated uh, by hatred against one of the protected groups? Yes, um, that is the straightforward uh, part three of the bill. Um, and it, it does what you have just described in two ways. The first thing is that it does is it creates some um, uh, hatred-enhanced offences. Uh, and then the second thing it does is that it says um, that uh, hatred, uh, racial hatred, uh, can be taken into account um, in sentencing generally. So um, even if you haven't committed one of the enhanced offences, if you did the uh, normal offence uh, motivated by hatred, that can be taken into account in the same way as a whole range of other aggravating and mitigating circumstances will be taken into account by a sentencing judge. This is just defined as one of the additional aggravating circumstances. Uh, and that is all quite straightforward. Um, it isn't uh, it isn't the case, uh, as some some critics feared, that this was going to criminalize uh, your your mind, your thoughts. You must still uh, commit the offense. And then the additional factor is taken into account for aggravation. Right, because I've seen newspaper headlines, I'm sure you have two, where it says, you know, homophobes, transphobes and racists will be uh, will be convicted under this new legislation. No, they won't be. They'll only be if they act on those motives. Precisely. Um, so, for example, there's a whole range of enhanced assaults 
uh, enhanced assault charges um, provided in, in, in part three of the bill. Uh, so where there is an assault motivated by any of those factors, either you fall within one of the, spe- the specific enhanced offences, or um, even if you're being trialed for, say, a common assault, um, the the intention, the, the, the racist or homophobic intention uh, would be an aggravating factor. I mean, I have to say that uh, it's the kind of thing that judges tend to mention anyway. This is the, the second thing, the, the uh, additional aggravating factor bit, is simply giving legislative effect to something that is probably already happening. The first bit, um, I think, is the more important signal, the creation of specific um, uh, hatred-enhanced offence. So let's turn then to the, in, in my opinion anyway, thornier question of, of speech with my, my other hat on, my arts and culture editor hat, just before we started you recording would, you this. You would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Well, it's my opinion and I'm sticking to it. Um, I was reading tomorrow's Arts and Ideas page, and um, which carries our weekly philosophy column, uh, Joe Humphreys' uh, unthinkable column. And Joe was writing this week on foot of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter about how these issues go, go way back into intellectual history. And he cited John Stuart Mill and various other people who always come yeah. up in these discussions about, about freedom of expression and, and, and pointed out, which I think it's true to say, isn't it? That this is increasingly contested ground, these questions of speech, for, for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take, take two points there, if I may. The first one just relates to, to Twitter and to, other, uh, and to other intermediaries and platforms, um, because there is a move to make platforms liable for their content. And so if there is um, hatred, homophobia, Islamophobia, and so, so on on Twitter, well, then... Um, uh, you and I might post it and we're going to be liable, but shouldn't Twitter be liable too? Um, and at the moment, under European law, the answer is no. And under American law, the answer is no. Um, and uh, because under European law, the answer is no, this bill contains a saver for uh, internet service providers and platforms um, so that the European no continues across into this context as well. Um, so at the moment, we can't make Twitter liable for these kinds of things. However, um, uh, there are some exceptions in the European rules. There are some exceptions in the American rules. If you bring it to their attention and they don't take it down, then they can be liable. Uh, and secondly, there is a movement to change those exemptions, uh, whether um, uh, by Judicial interpretation is going to the U.S. Supreme Court, and you know they're they're mad now, so all bets are off as to what they're actually going to say. Uh, and that's the technical term, mad. Uh, I actually, in in a recent uh, in a recent blog post, called them nutty, uh, which I think is uh, even more accurate, perhaps less technical. Um, so there are attempts to change those exemptions legislatively as well. Um, and those are being forever proposed in the European Parliament and, um, you know, one, one might eventually emerge. So the first thing is that uh, platforms, although they're neutral, um, they increasingly engage in the policing of this kind of speech uh, for internal content reasons with content moderation and so on. Uh, and for so long as they remain neutral and for so long as they take down once they're alerted to the illegality, um, European law and American law, uh, gives them uh, an immunity. The second question, though, is is the more fundamental one relating to the the um, the philosophies 
underpinning the legislation. And on the one hand, there are the free speech philosophies, the idea that um, democratic participation is necessary in a democratic society uh, and, and speech that is part of democratic participation ought to be tolerated, even if it is uncomfortable. And there's a recent High Court case called Talon, uh, where um, an antisocial behaviour order against somebody who was um, making these kinds of uh, comments uh, through a loud hailer in Wexford. I can't remember, was it Wexford Town or another town in Wexford? Or certainly gone to Wexford. Um, uh, the, the, the ASBA went too far uh, in impacting on his freedom of expression. Uh, and then there is the other good, great justification, the million justification, that uh, it's good for me to talk, it's good for you to talk, it's good for us to talk talk to each other, it's good for society that society can talk. Uh, I'm sorry to be quoting the old BT ad, I'm showing my my age. I used to have hair and I was less chubby uh, when that ad was, was on the television. You, you and me um, both on. Uh, but but it's, it's all about sort of self-development. Um, and so... These are the great justifications for freedom of expression, democratic participation and self-development. And that only works uh, where the speech is um, engaging with the big democratic and social issues and therefore uh, engages with matters of social concern uh, in, in a way that you know, it, it might, uh, that, that, that will make other people uncomfortable. So the, the, um, uh, the argument that this bill might go too far is the argument that by virtue of criminalizing speech that potentially tries to engage with a democratic or social expression, um, uh, it prevents those good things. And so the technical question will be whether the definition of infringement, the, the, uh, the, the offense, uh, the, um, uh, the incitement against persons with the various characteristics as defined, and we should mention what they are in a second, um, on the one hand, uh, runs up against a public interest defence on the other, which is supposed to encourage that kind of expression. And, um, you know, there, there will then be the, the, the question in any particular case, um, uh, is, is, it, um, is it an infringement, is it a, an incitement, versus is it in the public interest? And the legislation gives us some guide, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't complete it. Now, I said we should mention the, um, uh, the protected grounds. Uh, it's not enough that I can say that your speech um, uh, incites against me. Uh, for the protection of um, this legislation, uh, it's incites against me on the basis of race, colour, nationality, religion, uh, and that includes um, no religious belief, national or ethnic origin, descent, gender, sexual characteristics, sexual orientation, or disability. Now, this list is a an expanded version of our current equality list in the Equal Status Act and the uh, uh, Roderick O'Gorman has announced that that bill or that that act is being looked at. So I assume this expanded list is coming from that work and will reappear in the new equality legislation when it, when it uh, emerges eventually. But that's a, a, a long list of things in respect of which hate speech is um, a criminal offence. And let me ask you something about that. Thank you very much for that. Sure. was all, all extremely comprehensive. Um, um, let me give you a concrete example. On, um, I made a complaint to a social media provider about a post um, a few months ago, and that post was encouraging physical violence um, against the employees of a newspaper, not my newspaper, another newspaper mm-hmm. group. Um, sure. 
that um, that post was ultimately taken down. I don't know if it was because of my complaint. I suspect it, mm-hmm. I suspect it wasn't. But do, for example, journalists in their line of work or people who have may have a particular political belief, mm-hmm. are they not entitled to the same protection as people's religious beliefs? Well, I, I wonder, I mean, some newspapers have um, a particular party line that would fall within one of these uh, protected characteristics. Um, more generally, um, uh, incitement to assault is a common law offence anyway. Uh, it's just that this is an additional layer of protection uh, for these additional grounds. So um, uh, even if I were to put up a post saying uh, all journalists named Lenehan who are who are bald and wear glasses, you know, um, let, let's let's go and um, uh, cut down the trees in their front garden and uh, you know use it to, to to burn the front door or something. Um, so as you can see, it's quite an elaborate threat. Um, uh, e- even even if it weren't, um, e- even if you know journalists called Lenin aren't uh, uh, a protected characteristic, that would still come within the um, the uh, the common law offence. So they do get the the protection of the general common law. Um, and this is just saying that with all journalists called Lenin who are you know anti-social, irreligious bigots, um, now it's uh, beginning to engage with a protected characteristic. And then the additional crimes provided in this legislation would kick in. And so some critics on the, from what I might call the free the free speech side uh, of, of this argument, I'll come to the other side in a moment. I mean, they, they cite particular cases in Ireland, which have taken, which have happened over, over the last few years. Um, um, the, some statements by the, um, the well-known, um, atheist scientist Richard Dawkins about the nature of Islam, for example, some statements made by the presidential candidate Peter Casey uh, about travellers, and more recently the three days of Liveline programming um, about trans issues. Um, And they ask, would any of those have been constrained, prevented, censored, or indeed charged with a crime on foot of this legislation? Well, I can't speak for whether they would be charged, but I can say that they would certainly be caught by the legislation um, in two ways. First, um, uh, the this would all uh, all of the examples that you have you have given, um, uh, if they are likely to incite violence or hatred against uh, people with the protected characteristics, um, then. Uh, the the uh, the criminal offence is potentially committed. So um, uh, let let's assume that all of the examples that you've just given, Dawkins and Lifeline and so on, uh, fall within that. Um, then the next question is uh, whether the public interest offence uh, would kick in. Um, and the legislation, as I say, provides for a broad offence, but also provides for a broad defence. If it is a reasonable and genuine contribution to literary, artistic, uh, political, scientific, religious or academic discourse, and Dawkins would claim, of course, that he is an academic, the um, uh, um, the, the Loudline example is an example where it was a, uh, at, at the very least, a political or religious um, uh, discourse, uh, and uh, then would it, uh, so for the purposes of this uh, public interest defence, the question is, uh, would any of the individual comments have been a reasonable and genuine uh, contribution 
to uh, such uh, to such a discourse. Um, if I could cut in slightly yeah, on that, sure. I mean, opinions do differ on these questions, don't they? For example, in the on foot of the Liveline debate, you know, a number of uh, commentators, including some in the Irish Times, described um, the entire thing as a quote manufactured debate, um, which mm-hmm. Im- implies that it did not have the legitimacy. So, are these things not in the eye of the beholder to some extent? Uh, they are, but the whole point about freedom of expression, uh, when you choose to protect it, is that you protect not just the stuff that you agree with, but you have to accept also that you are protecting the stuff that you disagree with. I mean, I regularly read stuff in the Irish Times that I disagree with. Um, we'll not mention your comments, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, we, we'll just say that um, that is the price I pay for reading the stuff that I agree with as well. And, you know, the general coverage that, that I read the paper for. Um, so. Uh, but the question is, it, should, it, the, it, should the yeah. state intervene in that judgment in the form of legislation? Um, or well, to what extent um, should it intervene? So it's, yeah, that, that's a good question. One of the arguments against this bill is that it is simply virtue signaling, that the state is um, sending uh, sending a signal that it's on the side of the angels. Uh, and when the Prohibition of Incitement to Hatred Act was introduced in 1989, that was regarded as a progressive piece of legislation. And it was also signaled as a significant uh, example of the state standing up for the downtrodden. Um, and now it is said it hasn't gone far enough, and therefore experience has shown that it isn't actually sufficiently standing up for the down problem and more needs to be done. So certainly there is the argument that this is um, uh, uh, the state sending an important signal and then the argument against it is that it's a virtue signal rather than an important signal. Now, um, on the question of what is reasonable as and genuine in terms of a contribution, uh, yes, you're right, it's in the eye of the beholder, it's in the eye of the judge, it's in the eye of the jury, but um, we have a lot of case law that says that we have to accept speech that is unreasonable. We have to accept speech that is offensive. Um, and uh, you have to go a lot further than that. The Court of Justice, the Court of Human Rights have both said that you have to have um, either an obvious abuse of rights or a um, an incitement to uh, reasonably imminent harm. Now, uh, these don't add a great deal, but they do say that uh, simply disagreeing, that's reasonable, that's unreasonable. Um, this is a manufactured debate, so you can say nasty things about me. Um, that won't be enough to call the reasonableness into question. Aren't there certain um, um, realities here for the people who are really affected by this? And uh, you've already brought up the unfortunate fact that you and I are quite bald men um, and we're <laughs> unlikely to be affected by um, by the kind of behaviour which which, which the, the legislation is attempting to restrict. I remember way back in the days when I used to do bits of talk radio, any time a subject related to travellers came up, the, the text-in thing was very popular at the time, mm-hmm. the text machine would be flooded with, with messages of extraordinary ferocity it literally what i would characterize as genocidal hatred and it was a real eye opener of what's actually out there under a rock and i suppose then the arrival of social media since has kind of lifted that rock a bit more and perhaps has changed the goalposts in a way that that john stuart mill never uh, never anticipated and perhaps just requires more deep thinking about what you know what is required in a modern modern society with the the decline, um, whether that's regrettable or not, is another matter. But the decline of traditional gatekeepers and the the flood of a multiplicity of 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 different voices, some of which are very upsetting for people and possibly dangerous. 
Uh, well, I mean, uh, you you have always had that flood. Um, I mean, once you've had the invention of the printing press, uh, you've always had the ability of people to produce um, pamphlets and send them out. We've just got an electronic printing press. Um, what I would say, though, is to the extent that uh, um, we need to react, uh, we need to react to those things across a whole range of ways, not merely um, reaching for the criminal law, which certainly has to send a signal, but should also be the last resort um, in, an, in any situation, and in particular where, where speech is engaged. Um, so there are lots of things that can be done. NGOs can um, uh, can and do and are very active here in uh, bringing this matter, uh, these kinds of matters to public attention. Public figures, public politicians uh, uh, should react immediately whenever there is a hate crime. Um, sports bodies, for example, um, are reacting against racism and homophobia in a, in a way that has a very important sort of educational function uh, as well as a practical function of cleaning up the terraces. Um, uh, socially, we could do more to educate against this kind of hate speech. Um, so uh, uh, we should reach um, we should reach uh, legislation as the very last resort. Um, and uh, most of the, you know, most of the stuff, you lift up the rock and there you see it. You put the rock back, they don't crawl out from under it. You know, they, you, you, you got it on the text machine, but you didn't get it anywhere else, or you get it on Twitter, you don't get it anywhere else. Now, it is deeply distressing, and sometimes that goes over a line, and that's what the legislation is trying to do. I suppose the, uh, the recent developments in technology going a lot further than the printing press uh, is a practical reason uh, as well as a uh, um, uh, you know a social reason why the government is reacting in this way um, but an awful lot of it is is um, echo chamber hot air uh, it's only where it goes further um, and has the the effect of an incitement uh, as opposed to just uh, a straightforward you know I hate all bald white men um, uh, then uh, then it becomes a, uh, a an issue for for legislation but long before it becomes an issue for legislation there's a lot that everybody can and should be doing too there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and zepbound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The virtue signaling criticism kind of comes from both sides. I mean, on one side, some of the, I've, we've seen commentary from some of those NGOs which you mentioned representing, for example, uh, immigrant migrant groups and traveler groups, saying essentially that there are, as I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but there are too many exemptions, and they're particularly concerned about the one that mentions, I think, political discourse that that so much stuff could be included under that that this will end up like 1989 legislation and will be toothless. Mm -hmm. um, 
there's that, but there's also the other one from the other side, which is that um, the, the chilling effect of legislation in, it, in itself has an effect on behaviour anyway. Particularly in, in, in the Irish case, I think some people would say the behaviour of institutions, that they won't commission programmes or articles or published books or whatever it might be for, for, for fear of the consequences. And that's something we've seen, for example, with very strict uh, defamation laws in Ireland as well. Um, how... How much do you think that that chilling effect criticism has some validity? Oh, I think the chilling effect is 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 very real when it comes to um, speech regulation. Um, you're right; we already have sort of core areas where um, uh, publishers are careful, um, but they're far more careful than the, uh, than the than the than the law requires because they are risk averse. Um, if they get the calculation wrong, um, in a defamation case, it could be a very expensive uh, damages claim. In a criminal offence situation, it could be uh, that, that the journalists spend some time at the pleasure of the government. Um, and so uh, you have the sort of the core where you've got the, uh, the civil or the criminal offence, and then you've got the range around that. Uh, where you're just not going to take the risk. And that's where the chilling effect lies. And you always have the chilling effect once you have some legislation, some um, uh, some common law offence, uh, some, some civil wrong. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why uh, Ulysses wasn't published in Ireland is because Joyce was uh, worried about being uh, criminally sued for... Um, uh, the, the various sexual and offensive passages, or civilly sued for the various libelous passages uh, in, in, in Ulysses. Um, and so uh, in both cases, um, we know neither actually happened in the end, but that didn't stop him having to find a publisher in France outside the reach of, of, of Irish law. So yes, it, there will be a chilling effect. Um, that is inevitable whenever there is a, um, a, a restriction on speech. Yeah, I was. Um, the Irish Times had an editorial with tablets from the mountain, obviously, in 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 this house, uh, which I was reading on uh, yesterday. I think it was published, and it, it's about this. And among the things it says, and I quote here: "The enacting of such legislation sends out an important message about the social unacceptability of hate speech in a democratic society, and the requirement on the guard to take complaints seriously. Respect is ultimately a cultural rather than legal pillar of our society." I don't disagree with that last sentence. But I, I have a concern that that is the um, that is the conclusion drawn in a in a uh, in an article which is about a piece of criminal legislation. Um, am I wrong to be worried about connecting those two things? Well, there is the argument that our criminal law reflects our social choices, um, and then um, the the discomfort comes from the basis of the social choices and the fact that they are. Uh, you know, by definition, socially contingent and specific to a time and are likely to change. So um, uh, one of the things that this bill is doing is that it's filling the gap left by the repeal of the crime of blasphemy in the Constitution uh, and in uh, the Defamation Act 2009, um, so that uh, we've removed blasphemy and now we're going to use prohibition of incitement to religious hatred instead, and we're going to do it in an expanded way in this bill. Although some might, some might say that this is a new blasphemy law for a new secular well, Ireland. But that, that's exactly the point I was going to make, that the, the arguments in favour of blasphemy and against blasphemy uh, are going to uh, reappear in this context. Um, and 
the the the, the fear of um, a new blasphemy law for example, comes from the argument that this is legislating for the victors, that there is now a current majority on any particular political issue, and they are the ones who are legislating. And they might have been the minority before, and they might be the minority again, but now they are shoring up the defences so that they so that it's harder for them to be in the minority in the future. This is an easy argument to make about any piece of political politically inspired legislation, but it's like it's got particular resonance in, in this kind of context. Because... This is an intensely political debate now, much more political now than I recall it being 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, for for a variety of reasons, but shifting sands of, of politics in general, these arguments about free speech, and sometimes they're, uh, sometimes they're incredibly um, shallow and blunt, and sometimes mm-hmm. they're, they're more subtle. But one way or the other, they've been dragged into the culture wars and into, I'm not sure if it's exactly a left-right divide, but some sort of a a basic fissure in our politics in a way that I don't recall previously, which must create some questions about acceptance of these laws and the principles underlying them by society as a whole. Well, I think the uh, the historical moment that has the best analogy, in my view, is the, um, the late 20s and the early 30s, when uh, Ireland was legislating itself into a Catholic confessional state. And uh, there were lots of laws that flowed from the Catholic majority and lots of speech laws, like we have our censorship of publications legislation dates back to then, for example. Uh, and we're seeing the same kind of uh, social moment again. Um, that was religious politics. This is identity politics. Uh, but it's the same kind of uh, point that a, that a majority is legislating socially. Um, and, you know, the, the, the similarities are the certainties on both sides, the certainties on the part of those um, legislating for a, a social Catholic Ireland and those arguing against it uh, were ex- are exactly the same certainties as those arguing in favour of a piece of politically driven legislation now and those arguing against it as well. Um, and so it's it's um, if you were uncomfortable with uh, what happened in the 1920s, you will be just as uncomfortable as what's happening in the 2020s, because structurally it's the same. And I, I wonder, I mean, are you uncomfortable about it? I mean, just to mention one other thing, that, that person I talked about who um, made that statement on social media about the about the journalist, uh, mm-hmm. I ended up having a correspondence with them outside social media, which is always a better thing. And mm-hmm. among the um, among the things, it's quite a civil um, conversation. And among the things that person talked about was that was an idea which seems to have become much more current in recent years, which was that speech was not only capable of incitement to violence, but that speech in itself could be violence and was violence regardless of anything else. And that's a, I mean, that's a very anti-John Stuart Mill idea. And it's it, it brings a different element into this discussion. And I'm not sure how comfortable I am, I am about that. I'm not sure how you feel about it. Well, um, uh, I remember reading a couple of books as um, over the summer um, uh, as an undergraduate um, a long time ago uh, that had a significant impact on me. Um, uh, one was uh, Salman Rushdie's um, Midnight's Children, and the other was John Stuart Mill's um, uh, On Liberty, both of which I bought in the same second-hand bookstore in Cork, uh, around the corner from the new bookstore that I was actually working in, but you know couldn't afford the new versions. Uh, bought them in the same. And so um, my my 
I won't say intellectual default, but very often a starting point is nil, who said that um, you can only restrict speech, you should only restrict speech uh, where it amounts to, where it uh, causes harm. Um, you know, the my, my right to stretch my hand ends where your face starts. Uh, my right to say something ends where it actually incites uh, some sort of violence. He gave the example of me speaking uh, to uh, a couple of people who aren't really listening, saying, um, you know, the, the, the landlords are, are terrible and they are the, the cause of all the rises in corn prices, as opposed to me saying the same thing to a, an angry mob outside a corn merchant landlord's house. Um, uh, the, the modern argument is that even in the first case, that speech is itself the harm. Um, and I have to say that um, it's, it's a statement that's easy to make, but it's hard to substantiate. The idea that um, something you say is psychically harming me is a good justification then for restricting uh, what you say uh, becomes too easy to abuse. Um, if, if my religious belief says that all other religions are are wrong, um, and therefore, uh, you know, they ought to be they, they ought to be stamped out. Um, your religious belief, whatever it is, um, uh, would be harmed by that. Or worse, you asserting an alternative religious belief would harm me. This legislation doesn't go that far. It doesn't say that the speech itself is the harm. It does require um, some incitement, but it does take one step further. Um, which uh, may be inspired by that sort of idea and certainly reflects what is said to have been the gap in the 1989 Act, which is the example that I gave. Um, it's the hypothetical. It's it's based on a, a case, but it's a hypothetical I use in class of the guy going into the getting onto the bus and ranting against Africans because there's an African sitting there in the front of the bus and everybody pushing him off. Um, and the uh, that not being an incitement and therefore not being an offence under the 1989 Act, uh, this legislation will say that uh, it doesn't require that you be successful in the incitement, just that you intend it. Um, and that does take a step towards saying that the speech itself, rather than the effect of the speech, is what is at issue. Because the idea that speech itself is 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 violence. I mean, it's not just you know, it's it's not just on the fringes. It's not just pub talk. It's kind of supported by an increasingly uh, deep and wide swathe of academia, for example, which is where many of our ideas come from and ultimately filter into into society at large. So I just wonder: is there a legitimate fear that such ideas might filter into the interpretation of these laws? And when it comes to deciding. You know, as a as a reasonable person, be a judge, be be a judge or a jury. You know, mm -hmm. what who or what would be in breach of these regulations? Well, um, there is always the fear of overinterpretation and over enforcement. Um, and when you had uh, conservative Catholic judges uh, implementing conservative Catholic legislation, you did have over enthusiastic Catholic conservative interpretations being enforced. Um, so if we have a social movement heading in a particular direction and then judges forming part of that social movement, that will inevitably uh, feed into the interpretation and application of the legislation. Um, all I can say is that uh, in answer to the argument that particular examples of speech or violence for the purposes of the Act, uh, they may very well be. 
but then you have the uh, the public interest defence. And those who argue that speech is violence are the ones who argue strongly that the public interest defence should not be recognised, whereas those who argue that speech should only be restricted when it actually uh, incites harm, uh, they're the ones who say, well, then um, uh, you have to recognise uh, if you're if you're protecting speech for political discourse reasons, if you're protecting speech for social development, personal development reasons, you have to recognise the um, the uh, the public interest defence. And those are two very different um, philosophical strategies. Uh, as you say, they are coming out of universities, but um, universities, by and large, in Ireland more than England, um, uh, and in England more than the United States, but universities by and large are still committed to the principles of academic freedom, where uh, you can uh, teach and research and argue, not just um, uh, sort of the, the mainstream, but challenging the mainstream as well. So the bill, as I said, was published last week, so it will presumably proceed um, to consideration by by the Oireachtas over the next few months. Um, I, I think there's a there's an aspiration for it to, to to go into law next year. I'm not sure how realistic mm-hmm. that is. Other 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 elements may intervene. Um, I gather that you know there was a process of internal debate within the government over the last few months about it. You mentioned earlier on the role that NGOs and civil society have to play in this. And looking at it from outside, it seems to me that the NGOs were looking for something um, a little more robust from their point of view in terms of protection of, of these groups and that the protection for speech has been improved somewhat in the months since. Do you anticipate many changes or, or or indeed do you think that further changes in either direction should be required in the course of the legislative process? Um, well, uh, in terms of timelines, this is certainly not going to happen before the end of the year. Um, uh, I, I, I understand that uh, by next year what they're hoping for is before the summer recess. That is plausible because it's a relatively short bill. Um, so that the, the various mechanical stages uh, will be relatively quick relative to, say, the budget or whatever. Um, but whether there will be uh, amendments, uh, yes, I mean, it's it's pretty middle of the road uh, for the uh, current oil and channel, and therefore there will be a lot of uh, amendments on both sides. We've talked about two major issues. One relates to uh, whether going beyond incitement into saying trying is enough um, and you know trying a, a, an attempt is a criminal offense but a lesser criminal offense this makes it still the same kind of thing um, the those who are in favor of free speech would argue that uh, uh, if you're unsuccessful you haven't incited and you do have to have some imminence of incitement um, on, under most of the the, the the speech cases in the European courts so one argument will be that um, that extension, the one, the, the main gap, as it was in the uh, 1989 Act, that that extension, uh, there will inevitably be uh, amendments to remove it. On the other hand, and as you have said, the dominant philosophical argument in favour of this kind of bill now uh, would limit uh, political discourse around it and therefore would limit the public interest defence. And there will inevitably be uh, amendments to remove the defence or remove some of the grounds of the defence. Um, unless there is a specific factual example that becomes part of, I, I don't know, public debate, uh, 
it's unlikely uh, that uh, the government is going to be moved. And for so long as it has a, a majority in the Doyle, uh, it's unlikely to to accept um, a lot of amendments. There will always be technical amendments. Um, maybe there should be a slightly higher fine or maybe the interoperation of this bill with a different act uh, should be refined or something like that. So there will always be technical amendments and the government itself will inevitably bring some forward. Um, but significant political amendments, there'll be a lot of political noise. There always is from both sides, but it's unlikely, I think, that uh, that noise is going to be translated into, into change, either you know, removing the extent of the, limiting the extent of the, the, the criminal offence or limiting the extent of the public interest defence. Because as I understand it um, from reports, I mean, not only will this have the support of the of the, of the coalition parties, but the general support from most of the other parties in the Dáil as well. Well, there will be some, there will general support from a lot of the other parties in the Dáil, I suspect. This is, this is very close to what has been Labour and Social Democrat policy for a long time. The question will be whether it is sufficiently close or whether they will say there is a significant element in which there ought to be a, a significant change. And I think it's probably unlikely that it's too, too far away for that. But, um, uh, the, uh, the the further left you go on the spectrum, the more likely you get, um, and perhaps even further right on the spectrum, the more likely you get um, some element of the identity politics that are driving both sides of the debate, and therefore more likely to get some amendments as a consequence. And, you know, they, they will get some airtime, but I wouldn't be uh, sanguine that they will get uh, amendments. Owen, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. That's all for today. Thanks very much to Declan Conlon, our producer, and JJ Vernon, our engineer. We're going to be back very soon in a couple of days' time. Look forward to talking to you then. But until then, thanks very much indeed for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.